Before we get to the scripture, I want to tell you about something that happened to me uh, a few years ago, actually 15 years ago now. Uh, We started a church in Frisco, Texas, and the senior pastor and I drove buses for a year and a half to try to uh, not put a burden on the church for our full salaries. So this was a, a real stretch for me to drive a school bus. And I started out with the assignment of being the substitute bus driver. So they asked me to ride on different bus routes uh, in the mornings and afternoons. So that way, when people got sick, I could just fill in. Uh, Before my uniform came in, I had like a uniform that said Frisco ISD Transportation Department. Before that came in, I just wore my street clothes. At that time, I didn't have my beard. I may have been a few pounds lighter and I was in my 20s. And so I could have been mistaken for a high school student. So I remember being in the bus and some of the students uh, started talking to me and we were interacting and I started thinking, man, this is great because I was a youth pastor. I started thinking, well, this will be great. I can start connecting with the kids, the bus driver who relates and the kids like me and I can share Christ with them in a roundabout way, relational way. And it seemed like it was going well. They were asking me questions and we were talking about music and sports and that type of stuff. And then we came to a stop and the guy who was driving the bus asked me to fill out some paperwork. One of the students said, are you not a high school student? I said, no, I'm a bus driver. I'll never forget the look of shock on their face. And from that moment forward, they never talked to me again. (laughs) Sometimes we, we think we have somebody pegged and we kind of make some predetermined decisions. I like this person because of who we think they are. And then once we get to know them, our expectations aren't met. Specifically, um, when this story, when the relationship went from who they thought were, the, the students thought I was a peer to me going to an authority figure, it changed the relationship completely. And this story, I was reminded of it upon reflection on the text this week, because I see a Jesus that may make some of us uncomfortable. The problem is this. Jesus is okay to us when we're able to define him. So the Jesus who loves us unconditionally, well, we we can accept that Jesus. The Jesus that's here to bring peace to the earth by speaking against religious institutions and speaking against earthly government and starting this kind of counter-revolution, that Jesus is the kind of Jesus we like. The one who loves us no matter what we do, the one who brings us peace, the one who brings us forgiveness. But the Jesus who calls what we do wrong The Jesus who calls some of our behavior unholy and not pleasing to him. Once people find out about that Jesus, they reject the relationship. Jesus is okay as long as he's safe and beneficial and makes us feel good emotionally. But if Jesus demands something from our lives, our Jesus causes us to not feel comfortable about who we are or choices we make. Well, we won't accept that Jesus. Today, as we speak and we look at the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, 
you may discover or rediscover an aspect of Jesus that you don't prefer or you don't like, but it may be the part of Jesus that you need the most. The Jesus who comes and does not accept that which opposes the will of God. Let's look at Mark chapter 11, starting with verse 15. It says it this way, they came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers table and the chairs of those selling doves. Let me give some commentary here. This was around Passover. And at that time, people had to come worship God at the temple. They learned about God at the synagogue in other cities throughout the diaspora, throughout the the whole community, excuse me, the whole known world. And then they would come to Jerusalem for that specific atonement, that sacrifice. And so because of the long travel, they, they had to come and they weren't always able to bring the right types of animals and the right preparation for worship. And so as often happens when the God of money is ruling our hearts, people started taking advantage of worshipers. And they started taking advantage of worshipers on the temple property. It's not hard a stretch for us to see. We've been, you've probably been at a tourist site before where you know, inside the museum is the official gift shop, but outside is like all this riffraff of crazy tie-dye shirts and beads and whatever, all types of weird food on sticks that they're trying to sell to you before you actually enter the property. Well, th- this was kind of what was happening, except it was happening right on God's holy ground, right there in the temple grounds. People were taking monetary advantage of worshipers, Going on, and, and it says, he overturned the money changers, tables, and chairs of the selling doves, verse 16. And he would not permit anyone to tar- carry goods to the temple complex. Now, this is something unique to the book of Mark. Uh, Mark shares this detail. And here, through the temple property was a shortcut. If you wanted to get from the city to the Mount of Olives, uh, you could just take a, cut, uh, a shortcut right through the temple property. And so the religious leaders at one time had said, no, we don't need to do, to do that. This is holy ground. This is special ground. This is ground sanctified, set apart for worshiping God. It doesn't need to just be a thoroughfare here. That was the rule, but the rules had become lax. And you know how that goes. One person breaks the rule, then the next person, then the fourth, then the seventh person. And so it was the case that the very place that was supposed to be set apart for worship and set apart as holy unto God had become this this place of just like a flea market, a place where another roadway, nothing was special, nothing was unique. It was, uh, it had just become something um, very ugly that God meant to be very beautiful. And here we see Jesus asserting a certain amount of of earthly uh, anger, a better way to put that is righteous anger, excuse me, and earthly force. And he begins to physically turn over the table. So money's scattering everywhere. He's, he's making a scene on purpose. He's being disruptive. He's making sure that which was going about normally 
wouldn't go about normally again. Now, it's, it's football season now, I guess. Football has started, so here comes all the football analogies, right? Think about this, that if you've ever been to a football practice, it's one of the most boring events of your life. The football players work really hard for the glory of the games. They'll go through a play, and if the play is not run with perfection, you know, the coach, he'll say, do it again, do it again. We're gonna keep running the same play until it is correct. I see Zach sitting over there, Zach Rush and Caleb Powell, they were part of my coaching career. I coached fourth and fifth grade football for two years. I'm not trying to brag or impress you, but uh, these guys are great athletes now. And, and uh, when they would make a mistake, Zach was on the line with me, and he didn't make very many mistakes. But when other guys jumped off sides, you know what I said? 10 push-ups. Give me 10 right now. I'm not exactly sure if I could do 10 push-ups, but by golly, those kids are going to do 10 push-ups. What do football coaches do? The play is wrong. Take a lap. Go around them. Take a lap. These football coaches are not concerned about the emotional health of their players. At the time, they're not concerned about whether they're liked or not. They're not concerned about how the players feel about what they're saying at the time. What the coaches do is they disrupt bad behavior. They disrupt poor habits. They disrupt bad uh, bad practices that end up creating a bad team. They, dis, they do something disruptive. Give me 10 push-ups. Take a lap. Do it again. I will not accept something that is wrong. This is what Jesus is doing in the temple. If you're taking notes today, you can write this down. Is Jesus disrupts through his judgment. He becomes a disruptive force in the temple. He starts overturning tables. Money's going everywhere. He's causing a scene. He's stopping people from taking the shortcut through the temple because he knows that the way the people were acting did not please God. It did not honor this sacred space. How many know that we are that sacred space now? You and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus will disrupt and judge our lives because he cares for the outcome of our lives. The problem is this, everybody wants Jesus to be the savior, but he cannot be the savior if there is not a judge. If Jesus does not say, this about you is right and this about you is wrong, then there's nothing to be saved from. And one of the great fallacies of a modern version of Christianity that has totally escaped uh, what has been clearly taught in the scriptures for years is this idea of our sinfulness. Instead, we have a version of Christianity that's no different than humanism. We're all basically good, and uh, if we get better and better, we become like God. Yeah, that's the, the deception that started in the Garden of Eden. When Satan himself told Eve, told Adam, is, is God really different? Did he really say this? The fact is, guys, we have a nature that needs judgment and we need a savior. And we never, we never know we need a savior until our life has been judged and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of the standards of God. I wanna give you a bunch of scriptures right now. 
and I won't give a whole lot of commentary on these because I want to, I want to paint a picture because many of us have only had Jesus defined to us through what culture has said. We, we want this Jesus that's just really safe, really nice, really kind. We know that Jesus is completely loving, but part of being completely loving is judging sin. I would not be a loving father. I would not be a loving leader if I didn't say to my kids or didn't say to the employees here at the church or didn't whatever realm when I was coaching, whenever, if I didn't say, this is the right way to do it, this is the wrong way to do it. I'm not loving people if I let them continue in wrong behavior. As a, an effective leader out of love, I say, hey, I might need to have a loving tone and we need to watch our tone, but we say, some things are right, some things are wrong. And Jesus not only does that, he will do that. When we sing about the coming of the Lord, and I'm so glad we're starting to have songs to, that talk about the coming of the Lord. We just didn't sing about that for a couple of decades. But when we sing about the coming of the Lord, and we don't know all the details of when, how, that's all gonna happen. We just know that the Lord says to be ready for his coming because it's not just about this life. It's not just about this day. There's a greater day coming and our lives are preparing us for eternity. So when we sing about the coming of the Lord, we're also singing about one of the things that happens with the coming of the Lord is the Lord comes and he judges us and he judges the world and he identifies what is of him and what is of Satan. And of what is of him, he redeems. And that's why we need grace. That's why we need the savior. Let's look at a bunch of scriptures here. We already read verse 15 to 16. Matthew 19, 28 says this. Jesus said to them, I assure you, in the messianic age, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So part of Jesus being on his throne right now and the full, the full recognition of that and when his coming, the whole world will see that he's on the throne is that a judgment comes to the world and those of us who are believers will be part of that. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10 says this, for we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ. Most translations say this, the judgment seat of Christ. The Holman, which we use, kind of gives it fresh, a fresh look here. We'll all be before this judgment of Christ so that each one may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Again, this is pointing to our need to Jesus as a savior. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, and I believe that I, I put it wrong in the review, but it's 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, says this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. Do y'all see that right there? Who's gonna judge the living and the dead? Christ is gonna judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. And then he goes on and he, he um, encourages this young preacher, proclaim the message, persist in it, whether convenient or not, rebuke, correct, encourage with great patience and teaching. The reason we teach the word of God to you and we teach and we admonish and we try to tell you what God says is because the judgment's coming and we wanna be under the protection of the cross. We wanna be under the protection of grace. We want to make sure that we are wholly trusting Jesus for our salvation because without him, he not only saves, but he judges. Second Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5 says this, therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches 
about your endurance and faith in all persecutions and afflictions. Verse five, it is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment. That scripture may not be in your notes, but Jude 14 and 15, Jude only has one chapter, so there's not a chapter, but Jude 14 and 15 says this, look, the Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict them of their ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Again, I'm painting a picture of why we need the substitutionary work of Jesus. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid the price. Jesus took my sin, Aaron Allison's sin, upon himself. Because if he didn't, we would be under his judgment. Revelation chapter 19 talks about what will happen. It says, after this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Because why, why do we worship God? His judgments are true and righteous. And because he has judged the notorious prostitute who's a symbolic for a, a certain type of people who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his, sla- of his slaves that were on her hands. So one of the reasons we worship the Lord is because he's a judge. And see, in our culture, we take some of the words of Jesus, which are accurate. He says, judge not lest you be judged. And, and that is very helpful to those of us who have a religious spirit about us. We don't, we don't need to have a judgmental spirit towards people. But the problem is we have projected what Jesus has taught us not to do back upon him. And now we wrongly somehow believe that if Jesus, who is holy, perfect God, casts judgment upon us, that, though no, that's not God really wouldn't do that. Of course, the, the Bible's completely about that. And I, I know this, the scripture says judgment needs to start in the house of God. So we ought to be asking the Lord to judge our sins more harshly than us just talking about societal sins. And, and that's a big mistake about having a self-righteous attitude. But it's clear here that part of the God we worship is a God who judges us. Revelation 19, 11 through 13 says, I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and Truth. And he judges and makes war in righteousness. And we'll just stop there. That's who God is. Jesus is one who judges the earth, who judges society, and he judges you. Jesus judges you. I, I want you to know this. Some of us, we, we have such an aversion to that word it even feels uncomfortable to us. Like, oh no, Jesus could never judge me because he's good. No, because he's good and holy, he's the only one qualified to judge you. He has the right to judge you and because within him, he holds the essence of holiness and he's the one that says, this is sin, this is not sin. And that goes for our lives, primarily, he, he judges who we are. So now that Jesus has come to the temple and he's overthrown the tables, money scattered everywhere, he stopped this shortcut, he stopped this flow through the temple courts and he's executed his judgment. So is that all Jesus is, a disruptive force? Is that all he does It's just disrupt things, keeps us from having fun, that's, you know, what we wrongly believed as immature teenagers, that God's trying to keep us from having fun or that, that we're, we're supposed to avoid any pleasure because it, God is testing us. No, it's not that. He's protecting us. So Jesus comes and he judges what's happening on the temple, but he doesn't stop there because he gives purpose. 
Because when something, when anything has purpose, when anything has purpose, then that's when power begins to, to happen. When the temple forgot its original purpose, then it became dysfunctional. And, and it had all this crazy, like, flea market, bizarre thing happening because it forgot its purpose. You know, I think about American history. And here in America, something really remarkable happened to us in 1961. May 25th, 1961, President John F. Kennedy said something that gave purpose to our space program. He said this quote, said, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out to land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth. That was an audacious quote. He, he took this, this NASA agency, this agency called NASA, and they were just trying to get rockets up into the sky and called the nation itself to this impossible goal to land a man on the moon. And you know the rest of the story Neil Armstrong did so in 1969. The purpose, having this audacious, vast, grand goal, pushed that agency and even the whole nation way past any expectations. And now NASA doesn't really have a lot of purpose. It doesn't really even function besides maintaining what's already happened. And they're trying to cause a space program to be privatized. And it's been a nightmare. It's been a disaster. And, and for 40 years, 30 years for sure, the nation's made no progress there. There's been no goal. There's been no, there's been no purpose in that. There's power in purpose. Here's the second point. Jesus doesn't just disrupt through his judgment. He gives a holy vision. He gives a holy vision. He, he, gives, he gives a vision for the temple. He gives a vision for what he wants. He doesn't just come and say, this is bad, you people are bad, this is wrong, and I'm the one to judge that. So you stink, forget you guys. No, Jesus disrupts through his judgment because he gives a holy vision, something higher, something bigger, something vast. Something that would move the temple activity from this kind of mindless exchange of commerce. That would move the temple activity to this distorted, corrupt expression of the religion of man. And instead, the purposes of God would come forth. And Mark chapter 11, our text today in verse 17, then he began to teach them. It is, is it not written my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. These thieves were these people taking advantage of worshipers. And God, through, through his son, Jesus, did not come and just disrupt with his judgment only. Instead, he said, I am disrupting what's happening because I have a bigger vision. I have a greater vision. I have a vision that's grander and more vast and more holy and more meaningful and originated from me. This temple, this place is to be a place of prayer. And it's not just gonna be a place of prayer just for this exclusive group of people. It's not just a place of prayer for this 
these sons and daughters of Abraham, these Jewish people. And you know, I love the Jewish people and I thank God we wouldn't, be, uh, know, we wouldn't know Jesus today if it wasn't for the Jewish people. But Jesus came and he said, the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles too. And Mark, through this writing, makes it clear this word nations, ethno groups, means that every single ethnic group, every grouping of people, whether they're in Siberia, in Russia, or whether they're in the back jungles of South America, or whether they're down in the, uh, the, um, the deserts of the Middle East, or if they're down in Africa in the jungles there, every single people group, every ethnos, Every nation belongs to the Lord. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. This is a grander, bigger, larger vision. This is a holy vision from the Lord. This is a holy vision from the Lord that the Lord says to to this particular people, you're playing games with my word. You're playing games with my principles. You're playing games with your worship. You're causing it to just be... another economic engine to bring you materialism and and to feed your greed and to feed your idolatry. There's something bigger. I have a plan, not just for the Jewish people. I have a plan for the whole world. And it starts with prayer. My house is a house of prayer. My place is a place where people connect with God. I, I want you to know this. This applies to us as believers today. Church is not just a place for entertainment. Church is just not a place for social engagement. Church is not a place for you to build your business. You know, all of those things may be a side benefit, uh, the relationships we build. I, you know, I believe in community and 242 groups. You know, that I believe in, in us as a body helping one another. I, I believe in social causes and for us being involved in the need of our community. I believe in all of those things. But if we're not people of prayer, If we're not people who are humbling ourselves before God and saying, God, we can't find the answer. Well, God, we cannot in our own power make a difference in our generation. And Lord, we're gonna be humble enough to pray. If we don't become and continue to become people of prayer, we're wasting our time when we gather. Jesus said this, this temple, and now he's talking about you, you and I, and this house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Can I remind you guys that what we do makes a huge difference in the world. What we do makes a huge difference in the the, the time that we live. The, The building of the church and the building of your spiritual life is the most significant contribution you'll make to this planet. It's more important than any political agency. It's better than, it's better than any government agency. It's better than any kind of uh, service agency. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not just for us. It's for the entire world. That's why I love Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. It's one of the most hopeful scriptures in the Bible. It's talking about what will become. And John, who was writing down what he was seeing in the spirit, said, after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number. Now it's great to see that everybody was there. And it's great to see that all of these different people were here, but why were they here? Read on. Standing before the throne and before the lamb, which is Jesus, they were robed in white with palm branches in their hands. And they were saying this. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. 
This was a vast amount of people from every nation, every tribe, every language. There's so many that you can't even count. And they were there with one heart and one purpose, praising one specific God, the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, who came upon the cross, who took the sin of the world, who rose from the dead again. He has a specific name. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jesus. He is a God with a very specific identity. There's only one God. He's our God. There's only one Lord. His name is Jesus. And the holiness and the righteousness that that he has demands the world to worship him. That's why what we do is huge. What we do, uh, souls are on the line. Eternity's on the line. We don't just go to church. We build this living organism that represents Jesus and his name. And we're going to see great things in our day. We're going to see the gospel spread in ways we can never imagine. How do I know that's going to happen? Because of Revelation 7. This is talking about what will come, what will happen. That there is tremendous opportunity. But it's not going to happen if we're playing games in the temple. It's not going to happen if we're using religion to take advantage of one another. You know, it's true that if we really believe in somebody and then they disappoint us, you know, deep love can turn to deep hate so fast. That's why we have so many problems within our families. Because those we love the most, we have the tendency to hate the most. And unfortunately, this is no fault to Jesus because Jesus is pure and holy. But when people don't like a Jesus they discover, a Jesus who judges, a Jesus who has standards, a Jesus that calls some things good, some things bad, they, they move from this great admiration for Jesus, treating Jesus as if he's like Santa Claus or some kind of mythical character, to this unreasonable hate towards Jesus. Here's the last thing I want to point out from the passage today. Jesus then is despised. Jesus is despised. Jesus disrupts with his judgment. And then Jesus gives a holy vision. But unfortunately, so many people despise Jesus and they hate the work of Jesus. Look at the text today. Mark 11 verse 18. And then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they started looking for a way to destroy him for they were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Can I tell you this, that people who have not been redeemed by the grace of God hate the gospel. It's it's really interesting to me that it's really hard to find people neutral about Christianity. It's not enough to just say, hey, it's not for me or, you know, that's fine. I'll let the Christians do what they want to do. People hate the gospel. They mock Jesus. They make fun of Christians. They make fun of the Ten Commandments. They make fun of standards. They make fun of holiness. I I believe it's because their spirit is agitated. And it's not enough to just casually reject the gospel. The gospel is rejected with much hate and much derision and much venom. The gospel is opposed. And I believe in the coming days, we're going to see dark become darker and light become lighter. I think the greatest days are ahead of us for the church, but the greatest contrasts are ahead of us too. That this is not a day of lukewarm Christianity. 
2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10 and 11 says, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. Now look at what it says in verse 11. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. Have you heard the phrase, don't be delusional? <laughs> to be delusional means you believe a lie is truth. And when people reject Jesus and that clear path to salvation and they reject the gospel, many times what happens is they begin to buy into the lie and they begin to believe a lie so they, they believe a, 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 they believe a lie so much they become delusional. And and it's it's crazy to me the ends people will go to defend sin. The ends people will go to defend those things that oppose to God. It's a delusion. And when you reject God, when you reject God and say, I don't, want, I don't want the gospel any part of my life. I don't want the word of God part of my life. The scripture is just this old book. You know, that's the challenge for the last 500 years of Christianity. The scripture has been the authority and now the scripture is being undermined. It's being undermined because now, because it has authority on it. And if, when you begin when you begin to undercut the scripture and you begin to marginalize the scripture, then you can marginalize God. And then what happens? A delusion comes. You begin to believe a lie. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 is our last scripture I wanna share. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the son of God? This Jesus who judges us, profane the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified and outrage, outrage the spirit of grace. For we know the one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Brothers and sisters, I love you too much not to tell you this. Our Jesus is a Jesus who judges. He judges your life. He disrupts your life with his judgment. He says, he says there's many things in our lives that are not, not pleasing to him and that he calls not of him. But then our Jesus doesn't just disrupt. He gives a holy vision to us, a vision of the people we can be under his grace and under his strength, under his love, under his forgiveness, under believing holy in the cross. And I shared many, many scriptures with you today because I know that over the course of the year, I know many of you are trying to read your Bible and reading the Bible, you don't always get to different passages and you don't systematically study like that. And, and we must see Jesus for who he said he is and not who we want him to be. We can't create Jesus in our own image. We have to accept Jesus in the revealed, in the revealed word that's been given to us. Let's stand together. Now, I want, I want you to remember this because these scriptures that I shared with you today in isolation are disruptive and they were meant to be so. And fear can stir in us if we don't have Christ in our lives. But if you have the grace of Christ in you, and if you believe Jesus Christ was a substitute for your sin, and if you believe Jesus replaced your sin with his righteousness, there is no fear. For great, 
greater love has cast out all fear. So there is no fear. We just fully understand that this God that we love, who judges our lives, also is a God who forgives our lives. And we accept all of him. We don't just accept the grace. We just don't accept the forgiveness. We, we accept also the judgment because without the judgment, there would be no need for the forgiveness or grace. We accept all of him. And I fear not the coming of the Lord. I long for it. I fear not the day of my judgment. I long for it because I don't stand before God with my righteousness and my good efforts and my holiness. I stand before God covered in the blood of Jesus. Is that not a great reality? And all of a sudden it makes the gospel mean something to you now. The gospel means something. The gospel is not simply about behavior modification. The gospel is about eternal salvation. And that's found only through Jesus Christ. This hymn's been on my heart this week. And I want us to sing it together before we respond as we sing to this Jesus that we fully embrace all aspects of him. Let's sing this with Beth now.